Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was a sunny afternoon cast, the Kinks musical, with their version of Ray Davies' take on Denmark Street, called Denmark Street, and that's because I've got Peter Watts here, the author of Denmark Street, London Street of Sound, one of the best books of uh, 2023, and been really well received, and uh, a new look, a new take of a, a certain slice of British or the English music industry and, and one of the most important areas of London and the music scene. First of all, a huge welcome, Peter. Hi, Jason. Lovely to be here. So um, tell us a little bit about the importance of the location of Denmark Street and the origin of what we know as Tin Pan Alley. Yeah, so just to sort of place it geographically in London, Denmark Street is off the Charing Cross Road near where Oxford Street meets Tottenham Court Road. It's right in between Soho and Covent Garden. And I think that that's why it's got such a great location. You know, it's between these two entertainment hotspots. The street itself is quite short. It's always had this musical history and I'd walk down as a teenager and it was always full of guitar shops. But it became clear that it had been a lot more than that over the years. So what kind of interested me is, is I guess, why Denmark Street had become associated music, what, you know, how, when, when that began and why, and how it had evolved. And it turned out it was all to do with the location, essentially. It originally was um, music before the door recorded music. It was all about sheet music. If you wanted to see or play mm. music, you had to either play it yourself or go and see someone play it live on a piano or a guitar or a music hall or a theatre. So if you had a popular song, you sold sheet music of it. 
that made it a branch of the books industry, which is, is what was going on in Charing Cross Road. That's where all the booksellers were. So we're the first sort of major publisher to settle on Denmark Street, a guy called Lawrence Wright, came to London from Leicester, which had been his previous base. Denmark Street was a really obvious location. No Gay Music was one of the pre-war era publishers, wasn't it? Yeah. So, so Lawrence Wright came down in 1910. He owned a song. He was a songwriter, but he also owned a song called Don't Go Down in the Mine, Dad. And that suddenly started selling sheet music after there was a mining disaster in um, Cumbria. And with the um, money he made from that, he gave some to um, a relief fund for the miners' families. I think about 150 miners ended up dying. Um, and he used the rest to move to London. And he was a really important, pivotal figure. And a lot of music publishers followed him, which meant the songwriters who were writing the songs only had to go to one street to try and sell their music. And one of those guys was, was Noel Gay, who was kind of Reginald Armitage. He was from uh, Yorkshire. He was a very talented musician who could have been, you know, a sort of classical musician, but he, he sort of got into popular theatre, um, writing reviews, made a fortune when he, when he wrote the music for Me and My Girl, including Lambeth Walk. Instead of just sticking as a songwriter, he went into publishing and he became a, a publisher of his own and other people's songs. And Noel Gay had a presence on Denmark Street from after the Second World War, up until the, I think it was about 2018, they, they they closed their office down, still kind of making a certain amount of their um, of their income, not all of it by any means at this stage, but from those songs that had been written by um, by Noel Gay, as he called himself, it, that was a kind of his, his songwriting name, you know, songs like Lambeth Walk, you know, which was a sort of European sensation. In terms of our next week, we've got Jimmy Kennedy and Michael Carr. And they're two of the more preeminent pre-war Denmark Street songwriters, weren't they? Yeah. So there was loads of songs written and then sold to the publishers on Denmark Street. You have to sort of maybe consider what the publisher's role was at this time, almost like a you know the record label as it is as we know it now. In those days, you a song, you took it to the publisher. The publisher would then find a performer um, and use their sort of network of pluggers to get this song played by the right performers in the right views. And if you were the songwriter, you could make you have to make a choice, really. Do you sell your song outright for like, I don't know, 20 quid? Or do you hold on for a share of the percentages in the hope that this will be the one that sells, you know, a million copies? And it's very interesting seeing, you know, some people who, you know, the choices people make when they have to make that decision, including the two songwriters, for South of the Border, one of Kennedy, who hung on to his share and ended up retiring in Switzerland, and it was Michael Carr, who was a real character. I mean, he'd be like a boxer and like an undertaker and stuff. And he was the guy who wrote the melody and Jimmy Kennedy wrote the lyrics. Um, he sold his share and gambled it on the stock market and lost a lot. And I think that's there you've got the yin and yang of songwriting. It was a very precarious business for most people, but for a small number of people, it could make them very, very rich indeed. Something 
publications like the Melody Maker and Enemy were situated on Denmark Street as well? Yeah, and this was another thing that Lawrence Wright instigated. So when Lawrence Wright came down, he he, you know, he, he wrote songs. He wrote a song called My Souvenirs. He mainly published songs. He'd, he'd buy a lot of songs from America and sell them over here because America had a slightly sort of maybe more sophisticated uh, music industry at that point. But Lawrence Wright was very, very, very canny very good at publicity. He did all kinds of publicity stunts to sell his songs. And one of the things he did was start a newspaper. He called it The Melody Maker. Um, the first person on the cover was was Lawrence Wright or Horatio Nichols, which was his, his songwriting name. And so The Melody Maker began on Denmark Street as a publicity um, organ for, for Lawrence Wright's music. Um, it went independent quite quickly after that, but that began there. And then 30-odd years later, the NME started in 1952. It had originally been an accordion magazine. There had been an accordion raise in the 30s. And then it had kind of a limp on until one of the guys who advertised it regularly decided to buy it, turned it into the News Express and, and started that. I think it's from number five, Denmark Street. So, you know, the two most important music newspapers of, well, my life, as I was growing up, were both um, born on Denmark Street. And the enemy being pivotal in creating the first UK singles chart? Yeah, I think this is probably the most single significant innovation that we can that we can directly uh, trace back to Denmark Street. Because Denmark Street wasn't always about innovating, really. It became the home of the establishment. And a lot of the innovation sort of outsiders coming in and rocking the establishment, as we'll see later on with people like Andrew Goldham and and Malcolm McLaren. But when it started, you know, it had the bright idea of, well, you know, what's what's selling? There's also the change of music from sheet music to recorded music. 
that had happened gradually, but it really happened with this sort of change from shellac to, to sort of 45 singles. People were suddenly buying records in large numbers, much more than sheet music. So the enemy had the idea of phoning up a few record shops and asking them what was popular, printing the results as a chart, which became the chart as we know it, tremendously important and really showed that there was a massive change in music tastes as well, because the kind of pre-war music had been aimed maybe at, you know, it was a bit of dance, but it was mainly aimed, it was quite sentimental, either aimed at kids or at housewives, I think sometimes. And music after the Second World War was definitely geared at teenagers, and that, that completely changed how, how music was. And even the cafes on Denmark Street, La Gioconda, became a pivotal meeting place there for musicians, publishers. I think Dick James was often frequented there, for example. I mean, Denmark Street is an interesting street. It's very it's very short. There aren't that many places on there. But with all these different uh, music publishers based there and songwriters coming in and out, and you had recording studios opening up, so musicians were also now... Um, on the street, you know, they they kind of needed a place to hang out. There was a cafe called Julie's, it's called Julie's Dairy on the other side of the street, on the north side. But the really popular one was the Giaconda. That was on the south side. I think it was at number nine. I'm trying to remember top of my head. I can't remember all the numbers. All the numbers blur into one after a while. But I think it's on number nine. It's, it's the one that's got a blue plaque on it now, if you go down Denmark Street. And the Giaconda became, you know, it's almost like the staff canteen. You know, it's where everyone would go. As you say, Dick James, who was like, you know, been a singer and then became the publisher of the Beatles. That's where he would often hang out. Musicians like Jimmy Page, who were recording demos um, at Regent Sound, would pop in. You know, Elton John, who was working on the street, would go in there. David Bowie spent an awful, awful lot of time there, as far as we can tell, because he had a manager on the street. He recorded demos in two or three of the studios on the street. It was the place where people went and it was cheap and you could get a coffee and a, and a ham and eggs or whatever. It's where people exchange gossip. And I think that's a really important thing about Denmark Street is that in those days, you know, even those of us who've grown up sort of, you know, who, who sort of grew up for the Internet can sometimes forget how much physical meetings had to be, you know, that was essential for anything to happen. And Denmark Street was a really great spot for this because, you know, it was a short street. It was where everybody was. And people would bump into each other and, you know, and things would happen as a result. It was very much a physical thing, a physical network um, located on this one spot. And Denmark Street was also the place where Brian Epstein and Dick James made the deal to create the Beatles publishers, Northern Songs. Yeah. So, you know, the music industry changed with rock and roll and skiffle and, and you know, people starting to play their own amateurs and kids picking up instruments. But it really changed with the Beatles because what the Beatles did is they wrote their own songs. They wrote and performed their own material, which nobody really did before then. And so when um, Brian Epstein was looking for a publisher, the first Beatles single was published by EMI. And the publisher's role was sort of to do a little, you know, it, was, it wasn't just to put out sheet music at that point. It was to kind of act as almost as a publicity arm um, and to really push the song and get it played on the radio, get it played on BBC. And Epstein had felt the BBC had felt that um, the EMI's in-house publishers hadn't really done that job very well on the first Beatles single. So when it came to Please Please Me, he didn't. He wanted to find a new publisher. He asked George Martin, who he recommended. Now George Martin had recorded Dick James. Dick James used to be a singer before he was a publisher, and his big hit was the Robin Hood theme tune. 
George Martin had been the producer on that record. So him and Dick James had worked together over many, many years. So when Epstein was looking for a producer, he asked George Martin. George Martin suggested Dick James. And by that sort of roundabout way, this is how things happen in the music industry. Mm. Who you know, who you know, who you know. Dick James was invited to come up with a deal for the Beatles. And Dick James was smart. And he realised that this was a new type of music the Beatles were producing. And he suggested that they became their own publishing company. He would still keep 50% of that, which when you look back on it is quite a lot of money for someone who wasn't doing an awful lot. But it was revolutionary. And it changed things for music publishing forever because the publisher's role was was suddenly changed into they weren't really doing what they'd been doing before. But it made Dick James extremely rich. Next, we'll play the Kestrels and Please Please Me. And the extra link with the Kestrels is that was the group that featured Roger Cook and Roger Greenaway, who I understand also worked at Mills Music. Yes, absolutely. So we'll be covering uh, Mill's music shortly. But before then, I wanted to ask you about Regent Sounds. Yes. So many bands, whether it was demos or, or actually even released material, recorded at Regent Sound, didn't they? Yeah. So Regent Sound was the studio that opened up at number four Denmark Street in... No one's really sure. Not even Crispin, who runs the the, the, um, the instrument shop there. Not even he's quite sure when it opens. But it, it opened at some point, probably in the early 50s. And it was a demo studio. As I say, things were changing now. People needed to... Songwriters previously would go to a publisher's and they'd sit down at the piano and plonk out a song. But now that music was a recorded thing rather than a live thing, you know, you wanted to have a disc you could play. So you'd go to Regent Sound, you'd cut a cheap acetate, and then you could give that to the publishers to play and say, this is what it's going to sound like. So Regent Sound became a demo studio um, and quite a successful demo studio. But then Andrew Lou Golden had the brainwave 
of recording an album there and he took the Rolling Stones down there. And it's interesting because Andrew Lou Goldham had been to, he was a Rolling Stones manager and he'd actually been, an, when he was an aspiring songwriter and his, I think it maybe even his mid-teens, 15 or 16, he'd gone to Denmark Street to try and sell a song called Boomerang Rock <laughs> at Box and Cox, who were really old-fashioned publishers who kind of didn't really, they'd made all their money on, um, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. And um, whenever someone played a song to them, they'd say, that's quite good. But have you got anything that sounds a bit like, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. <laughs> so Andrew Lou Goldman had, had this experience. And, and I often wonder whether, you know, when he came to Denmark Street, it was to kind of, you know, get his way, you know, get back at, at Box and Cox and the old publishers. Because he brought the Rolling Stones there and they must have looked like aliens when they um, when they walked into Denmark Street. There's an amazing colour photograph by Terry O'Neill of the, um, the Stones um, on Denmark Street in 63. And they just looked out of this world. But he married them with Regent Sound, and it was very clever because where the Beatles were at Abbey Road, with you know the white lab coat and the you know and the and the great equipment and everyone calling each other sir, the Stones were in this dingy one-track studio with like you know egg box soundproof, you know all crammed in, recording round a single mic almost. And but they got that debut album, and it has a really brilliant sound. It really helped define the Rolling Stones very quickly as as something different. And it made Regent Sound a really attractive studio for others to do more than just record demos, but actually record record albums there. Next, we've got a clip when I spoke to Andrew Oldham and Alan Clark of the Hollies about the recording of Rolling Stones' Not Fade Away. And we're also blessed. You see, we originally tried to record with the first single in a standard recording studio with four tracks. And it really didn't work. I mean, come on, only went to number 18. And uh, we hyped a lot of that, right? The, on its own, it probably would have only gone to 38. But we, none of us knew what we were doing in a recording studio, including me. But I had no actual intention of becoming their producer until upon getting to know them, it became apparent that they, they would not function well under the system that existed, which ironically the Beatles functioned wonderfully under. The Beatles could draw on the other musical gifts of either their producer George Martin or their engineer Norman Smith or Jeff Emmerich, who all had such a devotion to music that the Beatles could utilize, I don't know, I think Norman Smith had a trad jazz thing, which you can see come into play. Anyway, but the Rolling Stones I knew wouldn't function. I, I wanted to record them independently anyway for a lot of, quote, creative reasons, but also financial. But it didn't work on four tracks because we couldn't operate in a system of what you hear is what you get. If we'd like to take, we then had to mix it, and you can either ruin it or make it by the way you mix it. And we really didn't have the experience. So I went to this old demo recording studio in number four, Denmark Street. I hope they haven't knocked it down yet. And with this great guy called Bill Farley, who used to just make demos, man, you know. And the thing, without knowing it, we captured the great thing of, of that made most of our, our heroes' records, which was Room Sound. You know, where, uh, I mean, Room Sound is king. Couldn't go wrong. To go back to Buddy Holly, it's amazing some of the, the themes or the connections with Buddy Holly that comes out. I think you've mentioned a, a moment where you were appeared on uh, the Rolling Stones' Not Fade Away, a Buddy Holly song, which I'm not sure is widely told, but that's a great example of another sort of connection there. 
Well, the story is that Graham and I were walking in London in where it used to be Tin Pan Alley, it was Wardour Street. And as we were walking down, this guy was walking towards us and it was Phil Spector. And Graham, Graham remembers it well because Phil Spector had a pair of red cowboy boots on, which I thought was absolutely fabulous. I'd never seen them before. But anyway, we were halfway down Water Street and this door opened uh, as we passed it. And it was the it was somebody that we didn't know, but he said, oh, Alan, Graham, Phil. He said, uh, the guys are in here, they want some help. And we said, well, who are the guys? So he says, you know, you know it's me. And, and oh, I said, Stone, you mean? He said, yeah, yeah, come on in. So we went in. And when we went in, we found there was an, another guy there, a 24 hours from Tulsa. Oh, Gene Pitney. That's right, Gene Pitney. And when we stood all around this one microphone with Mick, as though he was singing it, and we all had different things to play. And we said, well, what are we doing? So we're doing Not Fade Away. It's the Buddy Ollie. So we thought, oh, that's great. And we actually got on the B side as well. But um, yeah, that was a great memory. It really was. And I think the feel that he got out of that with that song, so different from the way that Buddy did it, but it turned it into a Stone song as well as a Buddy Holly song. Everything gets done by chance. You know, I, I do believe that if you're in the right place at the right time, things happen. And that's happened to me all the way through my life, that, you know, things have happened and that it's been in a good way. But in a bad way at the same time, some some of them, you know what I mean? You learn by your bad mistakes as well as you, the way that you live. So that was one of them. yeah, the stones. One other thing, Peter, was just the iconic photo, which is on the cover of Denmark Street, the book. Mm, that's a great photo. That's, that's Andrew Lou Goldham himself kind of wandering down past Lawrence Wright music, um, which is it's a brilliant image of, of the old and the new on Denmark Street. Um, you can see Foyle's bookshop in the background as well. There's a couple of great shots of Denmark Street. There's one of them, an Irish soul band unloading their vans in pretty much the same spot. But this one of Andrew Luke Oldham is just fantastic. He just looks pretty amazing, I think. And there's quite a lot of, whether it's artists or people in the music industry, and I've spoken to a number of them, including associates or friends of, of Elton John. After this, we'll be having clips of Caleb Quay and, and Tony King talking about working on Denmark Street, but Elton John was one of those people that, was it his first job at Mills Music? I don't know if it was his first job, but it was his first proper job. Yeah, he worked at Mills Music as a kind of post boy. He didn't work there for very long, and he's sort of quite funny in his in his autobiography. He says he kind of arrives at Denmark Street just as Denmark Street was kind of losing its place. But it would have been a great place for him to be because, you know, he was working at Mills Music, one of the publishers, he would have been surrounded by music. You know, he had the Geoconda across the road. There was uh, Francis Day and Hunter just around the corner on Charing Cross Road where you could listen to records. You know, he was playing in the piano, so he'd have bumped into the, you know, the musicians that he um, that he knew from the scene who were all on the street at that point, including David Bowie. And also it was useful because obviously he, he could play the piano, so he could play, you know, for the publishers if the songwriter came in with a song, because that was still happening right through the 60s and, and beyond. He could help them out by playing it on piano. There was this old phrase, phrase, you know, the old grey whistle test that comes from Denmark Street. And the idea of it was that if when um, a songwriter came in and played their song, if the doorman, who was normally an older man with uh, with grey hair, if he could whistle the melody afterwards, then it was worth buying because it was catchy enough. So that's where that phrase, the old grey whistle test comes from. Was it Elton went on to work at Dick James? 
Elton ended up recording with Dick James Music. So Dick James Music didn't have that many people, but it had the Beatles and it had um, and it had Elton John. And he recorded his first three or four albums, I think, on Dick James until the uh, the, the the classic uh, falling out, which happens between most musicians and their publishers or their labels at some time or other. And I think it's really interesting, actually, when you you know we've talked about four of the biggest artists of all time, um, the Beatles, David Bowie, Elton John, and the Rolling Stones. And they were all on Denmark Street in the sixties, but they were all doing completely different things. So you know, the Beatles were signing a publishing deal very old-fashioned in a way, but, you know, a new sort of publishing deal. The Stones were recording an album. David Bowie was kind of, you know, scurrying around, trying to make a business of himself as a musician, uh, making contacts, not really getting anywhere, but just trying and knowing he was in the right place to do it. And Elton John was an office boy in one of the old publishers. You know, it was. it's really interesting that it, mm. it just shows, I think, the variety of, of ways in which Denmark Street influences or touches on the music industry. And that's one of the real things that I found so fascinating, you know, the, the, the number of different ways it had an effect. Hey, this is Caleb. You were delivering sheet music. Yeah, the first job I got was in this place called Paxton's, which was a wholesale sheet music distribution company. So back in those days, sheet music was still a big thing. So you just still had dance bands, orchestras and stuff playing the popular tunes and stuff. So sheet music was a big deal. And in fact... When I got my job, I was there for about three, four months, and then I was able to land a job at Dick James Music, the Beatles Music Option Company. So that was like the big thing. If you could get a job in there, that was like the Rolls Royce of publishing companies. You know, they were the top of the heap. And they had a guy in there. They were doing, still doing sheet music of the Beatles songs, you know. And uh, so they had this guy that they used to contract out and he had this little office in uh, in the basement of a place in Denmark Street. So I used to go around there. I cut acetates for him. Hey, Jeff, we need the top line done on this song, you know, Odd Days Nine or whatever it was, you know. It was a classic situation because he was in this dingy basement with a, a light bulb hanging over his head and he had the shades on and he's scribbling away. And he was an older guy. He was he was from back in the uh, the big band days and stuff. Right. So his ears were more attuned to saxophones and trumpets and stuff. He didn't understand guitar music at all. And he'd get very frustrated and he'd call me up. He said, Hey, what are, what are they playing? What's this Beatles stuff? What's what's this chord? You know, so I'd tell him the chord, transcribing the music, you know, for the sheet music back in those days, yeah parallel to this because there's so much going on yeah obviously you had a, a friendship with elton who was then known as reg and right and then reg got involved with djm and then yeah. you started recording with him and started producing yeah. him so you, yeah. you got to see his evolution of as an artist absolutely oh from ground zero absolutely yeah it was fun i mean you know we were so excited you know bernie was was in the loop he's writing lyrics and it was all very unconventional because they never wrote anything together in the same room. Bernie at the time was living up on the farm in Lincoln and he, you know, send a bunch of lyrics in the mail, ready to get the lyrics, figure out what he wanted to do. And, you know, then he called me over, called me over to his house, you know, where he was living in Pinner. So it was a wonderful time of creating together, dreaming together and creating together. I say dreaming together because 
my friendship with Elton back then with Reg was we all we loved the same kind of music. Yeah, we just listened to everything: rock, jazz, blues, classical, you name it. I spoke to a Tony King relatively recently. Oh, okay. Who obviously you know. You? His story was quite similar. The thing about Dick James' music was it was very the other side of British showbiz, if you like, kind of Jewish music publisher type things. You know, there were a lot around at the time. There were a lot of, and, and I knew a lot of the publishers. And so working in Dick's office was, it was traditional music business as it was at the time before it moved on. So meeting Elton in those circumstances, it was just of its time, you know. I, I'm glad that we met then and there at that particular moment with Dick and in, in Dick's office, you know, because it was all not, not a lot of British old traditional showbiz feeling about it. And after hearing Caleb Quay and Tony King, peers of Elton John, let's hear myself talking to songwriter Roger Cook about his recording of Elton's Skyline Pigeon in 1968. I remember Reg, as I knew him as then, he played me that song. And I thought it was such a good song. I actually took the song around and tried, tried to get it recorded by other people. Because of that, it was arranged that um, Roger and I could have half of the publishing of the song just because I worked it. I never heard a verse and it was really taken off for me, you know. And so I decided, well, I think I know how it should go. And I cut it with just a couple of pianos. I liked it. I enjoyed the song. I thought it was a great song. It was just, it was before they'd had any hits of any kind, Alton and Bernie. So I think they were, they were thrilled at the time to get a cut.
Just let me wake up in the morning To the smell of new moon hay To laugh and cry, to live and die In the brightness of my day I want to hear the pealing sound The distant church bells ring But most of all, please free me from This aching metal ring And open up this cage towards the sun For just a skyline pigeon dreaming of the open Waiting for the day that he can spread his wings And fly away again Fly away, skyline pigeon, fly Towards the dreams you left so very far behind Towards the dreams you left so very, so very far behind. This is a, a, another interesting aspect of Denmark Street, and we'll all have heard the music but we won't necessarily know who wrote it, who recorded it. We might not even consciously notice the music, and that's library music. And KPM had a, a base on Denmark Street again. Yeah, this is something I, I found this really interesting because the 50s and the 60s are interesting because Denmark Street's really, really cool because of you know the people that we talked about. But I almost find the, the uncool part of Denmark Street more interesting because it... It just shows that music industry is about much more than the kind of classic rock canon. It's about middle of the road. It's about library music. It's about jingles. It's about theme tunes. It's about all this stuff that is really important and really affects our daily lives and needs to be written. It needs to be composed, needs to be recorded, needs to be um, published. And and as you say, um, KPM were there. They are at number 21 Denmark Street. The studio there was put together by... Guy I spoke to called Ted Fletcher, who'd, who'd sort of learnt his trade working with Joe Meek. So, um, you know, these are people who, who had sort of deep roots in some of the more interesting aspects of the music industry. But, you know, what he was doing there was really kind of, um, they didn't really record on Denmark Street, but they do a lot of the editing on Denmark Street of all kinds of theme tunes and jingles, Grange Hill, News at 10, Rugby Theme, Match of the Day. It would all kind of go through KPM. And, you know, a lot of that music now is quite highly valued. Um, and KPM has started putting out library music albums again, recorded by contemporary artists. Uh, it's a really interesting facet of the music industry. As our jingles, it's the same thing. You know, can you capture in 20 seconds something that is going to really, really stick in someone's head? And a lot of jingles were done on Denmark Street or around, not necessarily on Denmark Street, but certainly in the wider area. It was still the most convenient location. Great, so let's hear a clip of me talking to the late Alan Hawkshaw about KPM. And then going back to your work with KPM, it's interesting because there's a, there's a track called Towards Tomorrow, which I think was from about 1974. Prior to the sort of sampling, which I think it got very popular with a particular hip-hop artist, it got featured a few years later on a, a film soundtrack, Teenage Twins. Was that quite common in terms of pieces of your music or KPM music would just get picked up and then over the next few years it suddenly appear on a film? Well, I mean, that, that's what lab music is for. I mean, it's issued 
for that reason to, to be used to, on any form. The, the danger with library, if you're, if you're the producer or director, is you may find a great piece that works, as in that case, they probably like it, but you, it could turn up on any any form. A classic example of that would be Channel 4 News, Best Endeavours, which was a library piece. Mm. That was in Pale Rider for uh, Clint Eastwood, the movie. You get it in two different prominent um, features. Towards tomorrow, that's got a real funky feel. Did that come naturally to you in terms of that funk style? You know, it's difficult to um, to really get... I mean, yes, it, it would have come easy to me. I'm more of a percussive type of hammer player in those days, and I didn't consciously copy anybody else. I, the only organist that I was influenced by, to about Richard Groove's songs, would have been one that I would have been influenced by, and he never played, he didn't play anything like I did. He's was pure jazz, uh, Jimmy Smith, of course, uh, another one. And again, that was all cool jazz, it was swinging jazz, whereas mine was just out and out, energetic funk, you know. And I took a group of guys in there with sketch out palettes, and get some good players with me, and we'd come out with something, you know, with a good energetic sound to it, and a memorable sound to it. And I think that's what happened. But in that case, I think it was from an album called Sounds of the Times. So that speaks for itself. It was supposed to be sounds of that time, of that period. But they've let down.
So, Peter, another aspect of Denmark Street is just the sellers of musical instruments, including Argent's, which was owned by Rod Argent. Yeah, that was interesting. I spoke to Rod Argent a long time ago about that. He basically said that he'd hated going to instrument shops, but someone had suggested he opened a keyboard shop, and he thought, well, I'm going to, if I'm going to open a keyboard shop, I'm going to be, it's going to be the place where, you know, we treat everyone the same, whether they're spending, you know, 50 quid or 5,000 quid. And so he opened um, a keyboard shop on Denmark Street. The first music shop was kind of mid-60s. It was um, it was what became known as Macari's. It was originally known as Music Exchange. And, you know, this is kind of emblematic, really, of how Denmark Street was changing because the publishers, because of the Beatles, didn't really need to exist anymore in their old way. You know, no one needed to pair a performer with a with a song because the performer and the song were, were, were a single person. The publishers were starting to to disappear. It's interesting because at this point, Denmark Street, it could have just become a normal street. It could, you know, anything could have happened to it, really. There's no obvious reason that it would remain a music street. But because it had Regent Sound and because it had the Geoconda, these places where musicians were going, and all these offices above publishers, which were owned by, you know, publicity agents and managers and booking agents and tour agents, it's still a place that that it made sense to sell instruments to them. You know, that's what these people, you know, that's what musicians needed at this point now. They needed instruments. A guitar shop called Top Gear opened there at the end of the 60s, 69. And that really kind of was quite cool. Um, Lots and lots of famous rock stars went there of the 60s and 70s. And that sort of created the Denmark Street that we know today with all sorts of instrument shops. Although what I discovered in, in doing the book is that in the 80s, when I started going down to Denmark Street, late 80s anyway, for me, although it seemed that all those shops were independent, a lot of them were owned by the same man, a guy called Cliff Cooper, who um, who had also recorded with Joe Meek, and he invented the Orange Amp, and he set up an Orange Amp shop on Denmark Street, and then slowly bought more and more of Denmark Street, till he owned pretty much every music shop on it. But each one he sort of geared towards a slightly different, you know, so someone... He, taught, he bought the Argents to concentrate on keyboards and he had a bass shop and he had a place shop shop selling a still selling sheet music. He had a place selling brass instruments. Um, he had a drum place. And he said that he had so much money coming in the street that it wasn't safe to go outside. So they just they, they sort of knocked holes in the walls and they'd pass money from one shop to the other. If they, you know, if they needed change at one shop, <laughs> that's how they would do it. They would just pass it through the walls. That sort of gave Denmark Street its, I guess, its third sort of lease of life. And another interesting aspect of Denmark Street was hypnosis. You had the biggest artists visiting the office there. So hypnosis, who did um, Pink Floyd's album covers, most of everything up until the wall, they um, they took a space on Denmark Street partly because you know it was it was pretty cheap. Denmark Street it was always quite cheap. And they took an old dance studio. And it was perfect for them for the to turn that into an art art studio. Apparently, it was filthy. The, the custom was that you know the toilet was so so filthy that people just peed in the darkroom sink. Apparently, Hank Marvin of the Shadows was the very first person to do that. But then it became a tradition to pee in the darkroom sink. And you know they were hugely successful. They did you know they did in '73. They got in one month. They did Dark Side of the Moon and Zeppelin as well. They did Paul McCartney's album covers. They did 10 CC album covers. They were massive. And while they were there, at the back of number six, Denmark Street, there was an old warehouse and uh, the Sex Pistols moved in. They started rehearsing there. So for a while, you had the Sex Pistols and Hypnosis, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Rock Dinosaurs, etc. All, all in exactly the same 
bit of London, which I just find extraordinary. I mean, you know, you like it's like you couldn't script that. And that space in um, Denmark Street that the Sex Pistols used also was then used by Bananarama. It was, yeah. So it'd been used for music for a bit, and before the Sex Pistols, poor old Badfinger had had it, and that's where um, Malcolm McLaren um, got hold of it. And I think Malcolm McLaren, a bit like Andrew Lou Goldham, just loved the idea. You know, he knew his music history. And the idea of being on Denmark Street would have, would have pickled him for what he was trying to do with the Sex Pistols. So the Pistols were there. Steve Jones pretty much lived there. It was very convenient for them to play around London. Also, you know, meant they could practice because they needed to. And then after the Pistols sort of dissolved, Glenn Matlock kept hold of the lease. And, and at one point, um, yeah, Banana Rama were there and sort of under the Sex Pistols wing in a way. I never really realised this, but they were living at Denmark Street. And then I think other bands were using it, you know, right up until the 80s, it was being used by various, but I think Bronski Beat had it for a while as well. Well, let's hear a, a recent chat I had with Glenn Matlock in Pontefract about that rehearsal space and then leading into a Denmark Street demo of Pretty Vacant. And I was looking for the Melody Maker, which was a magazine that used to have adverts in the back, and I saw this thing, rehearsal space, lease for sale, Tim Pan Alley. I showed it to Malcolm. It sounds great. Call up the guy and offer him a thousand pounds without saying it. I said, You're mad. He said, No, 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 no. He said, Call him up. So I called him up. I said, well, My friend who just shown him your advert has asked me to call you up and offer you a thousand pounds for the lease without saying it. And the guy goes, I think we can talk business. So we went to see this place in Denmark Street. It was a tiny little place. I mean, it was a third of the size of this room, but with a room above it. And it transpires the guy. We put the advert in, it was a guy called Bill Collins who managed Badfinger. And Badfinger, two of them were no longer with us, so they had no use for the thing. He liked the cut of our chip and sort of took us under his wing. I don't think he ever got his thousand pounds. But we, we kind of, again, all these things that are kind of like concentric circles intersecting. I remember going up to his house in sort of North London and as we was going in, his son was coming out down the sort of semi-detached house pathway. It's quite posh and gold is green. And got into a, an old ice cream van that he converted into a sort of a, like a Bedford Dormobile kind of thing because he was going away on rap for the first time. And his son was Lewis Collins, who then ended up in the professionals, right? So it was all these strands kind of coming together. But that's when we really started taking it seriously. And that's where the bolt with Nevermind the Bollocks was... Britain. We did that Spunk album there. We did the backing tracks for that there. And that was our headquarters. So, yeah. And the songwriting process, you know, whether it's uh, Pretty Vacant or Anarchy in the UK, is that fantastic combination of you've really got an ear for melody or a riff or an inspiration of something. And then it seems that John would dip into his bag of lyrics and try and find some Yeah, pretty fits. much what happened. But we was all sort of skirting around each other. We, you know, I mean, I was 17 and a half getting off for 18 when I first started playing with them. I was the youngest one in the band at that time until Sid came along. Then we was all just trying to find our way. You know, nobody really knew how you sat down and wrote a song with somebody. So, I mean, it didn't really. We kind of... Somebody would throw a riff in and start playing that, and John would be in the corner, and as you say, had a plastic bag of lyrics. A couple of things I brought in. There was a couple of things that Steve had written, which we adapted. Seventeen was basically Steve's song, which John changed some of the lyrics. I brought Pretty Vacant in as a finished song, 
And then John, you know, I had the ref for Anarchy in the UK, which was playing, and John said, oh, great, you know, you got something for this lyric I've got. Peter, you mentioned about the 1980s. Things seemed to shift and change. I think there was a bit of crime. There was a bit of churn, basically, wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, the real churn had happened in the 70s, I think. And then in the 80s, it had settled down again a little bit with the music shops, the instrument shops, as as it were, really sort of um, embedding themselves and, and giving Denmark Street a real reason to exist. 
the crime, there'd always been crime on Denmark Street. One thing I found when I was doing research was the amount of drinking dens and, and illegal drinking venues that, that, that kept cropping up going right back to the um, early days of the street. I mean, you know, it's worth maybe going back even further. And the Denmark Street had been on the um, on the edges of something called the Rookery in sort of Victorian London, which was one of one of London's biggest slums, basically place where you know you, you the normal person would never tread without a policeman, and even policemen were pretty scared to visit. That had all been kind of tamed by the beginning of the twentieth century by basically building New Oxford Street and Charing Cross Road, and sort of you know just basically driving a road right through the slum. But it always had this little, um, this little sort of outlaw edge, and you know there are associations on Denmark Street with a couple of the clubs on there with organised crime, quite substantial nature. I quite enjoyed digging into that. There was also a really tragic fire where two sort of um, underground drinking places on Denmark Place were set fire to by um, a drunkard, really, who sort of um, had been thrown out, and he wanted to get his revenge, and and he ended up starting a fire that killed more than thirty people which um, until the July the 7th bombs was, I think, the, the sort of biggest incident of, of mass murder in Britain. And it almost got completely forgotten and overlooked, I think partly because a lot of the people who died were South American or, or, or not English, but also because it was a really, really squalid and depressing crime. The person who did it was caught very, very quickly and went to prison, and, and he died on the anniversary of the fire, actually. There has always been this kind of undercurrent. I devote a chapter really looking into that because it, it, it's a kind of nice contrast with the perceived glamour of the music trade. Denmark Street, not really known for live music, but uh, by the mid-90s, there was the 12 Bar Club, and that's very notable for quite a lot of acts playing there. Jeff Buckley, Adele, the Libertines, and after this we'll be um, playing uh, Bert Janch at the 12 Bar and Blackwater side. Um, yeah. Tell us about the 12 Bar. It was a great venue, the 12 Bar, and that was probably the thing that took me to Denmark. I'm not an instrument player. So, you know, that that was really the thing that took me to Denmark Street, the 12 Bar. There were two things. There was Helter Skelter Bookshop. So I think in the 90s, you had some quite interesting things happening. It got a bit more kind of diverse again. You had a bookshop, Helter Skelter, that just sold music books at number four, what had been Regent Sound. You had um, Eddie Piller opening the Acid Jazz record label there and then reopened a studio and he started recording, you know, Jamiroquai and Brand New Heavies and some and some some big acts. So you had, you know, it was a gave it a bit more of cachet. You had this guy who set up this idea of um, you could buy music on this thing called the Internet, which in 1994 was just like, what? But he, he was on Denmark Street. And it's fascinating. You read him and, you know, what he, everything he said came to pass. And he just said the record labels are fighting this, but they're fighting. They need to get on board, or they're just going to lose out. And he was dead right, but he was well ahead of his time. But the twelve bar was great. So this was um, born out of the instrument shops. It was a very famous guitar shop called Andy's Guitars, um, sort of number twenty three, I think. And some of the guys who worked at Andy's, they were all musicians, and they said to Andy Preston one day, the owner, you know, we'd like to have a place where we can play. You know, we all want to play. So. He found out that there was this old forge next door in the yard of the shop next door, which was a blacksmith's forge from the 1600s that had sort of never, never been demolished. It just kind of survived. And he turned that into a social club. And then as more and more people found out about it, it became a um, commercial venue, the 12 Bar. And it was an amazing brick, quite small, couldn't hold more than probably about 70 people. It had this crazy balcony halfway up that looked like it was going to fall down any minute. 
but it was a really charismatic venue, very good for country or for folk, but also quite good for punk, surprisingly, a lovely little bar. And it was for a lot of people, that was how they went to Denmark Street. You had lots of other venues around there as well. So you had the Astoria across the road, across Charing Cross Road, you had the Borderline, 100 Club wasn't that far away, you had the Metro. There were loads of other venues, but to have one actually on Denmark Street was really quite important to its continued um, prosperity. This one's called Black Horse. One morning fair, I took the the fog part of the night we're in a sport play till this young man arose and gathered his clothes and fell well today that's not the promise that you gave to me what first year lay on my breast if you could make me believe with your lying tongue that the sun runs in the west well, then go home now to your father's garden Go home And wave your bed And I think on your run In a spot of June You brought with your arms out Gazing all, all around 
the Irish lands And then over the last decade, there's been a lot of noise in the media about Denmark Street at risk and change there with cross rail and other developments. What's the the current status of Denmark Street? Yeah, so you know, one of the reasons I started writing the book was because I, I wrote I wrote an article for the Guardian and another for Uncut about about Denmark Street and and what was going to happen to it. And then you know, as I sort of learned more, I, I wanted to to explore it. And I've always had you know been keeping an eye on the development as I've been writing the book. Because it was all ongoing, and you know, a lot of the you know Noel Gay they chose to move. So there was a guy I interviewed called Tim Martin who who repairs guitars. He used to be, um, I think, he was Jimmy Page's guitar tech. Now he repairs guitars on Denmark Street. He got he got turfed out. Um, the twelve bar got closed down. It was like, well, hang on a minute. If everything goes, what's the point in Denmark Street? But the developers were insistent that they wanted Denmark Street to remain a music street. Um, but developers say all sorts of things. And it was difficult to really gauge what's going on. I may be giving them the benefit of the doubt um, in the book because I think they know that if they retain a music interest in the street, it will be good for their overall portfolio. So, that you know, they've turned some of it into a rock and roll themed hotel. They've reopened the 12 bar and called it the lower third. They're opening a studio there. They're bringing back all, you know, all the instrument shops. If they can afford the rent, they're welcome to stay. The big development that they're really concerned about is called the Outernet, which is this, I can't even describe it. It's like a walk-in advert thing. Like you, you come out of Tottenham Court Road, it's just this kind of building with um, two walls that open up to the street and you go in and then they just show adverts and short films at you. Um, and that's how they make all their money. I don't quite understand the economics of it. They've also built another venue sort of three or four stories down called Here. So Denmark Street itself is a small part of an overall portfolio and i think they definitely want music to be part of that the problem being as developers they don't understand the idea of light touch or diversity or just letting things grow organically so there's a real the real fear is that in their attempt to try and create something they actually end up losing the thing that they want they need it to evolve more messily than they will be prepared to but i do think they understand the history and how that can be of value to them going forward. Excellent. Well, at least there's hope to close. Denmark Street, London Street of Sound, I highly recommend for an essential part of music history. And we'll close with Spiz Energy's Christmas in Denmark Street, which was released about three years ago and had quite a lot of support from Tony Visconti. Thanks again, Peter. It's been brilliant to talk to you. Thanks, Jason. It's lovely. Just to say, yeah, the Spitz Energy thing, I think that was written as a kind of farewell, really, to the 12 bars. I think they'd, they'd, they'd played there quite a lot. Brilliant. Cheers, Peter. See you. I wish I was back in Denmark Street the way it used to be. The day before Christmas. It's gonna be shiny but gray 
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.